Well, hello, students. This is your abnormal professor. <laughs> uh, let's see, I've recorded a couple of recordings for you. Um, and so I wanted to post these uh, and get your feedback as far as, you know, if you can hear them okay and um, if you can access them okay and play them okay and stuff like that. Um, I'm not really thrilled with my performance uh, in recording. In fact, I was going to call these podcasts, but I'm afraid that that sort of sounds like some sort of finished product, <laughs> whereas these don't. <laughs> so I apologize for that. Um, this is just me talking about stuff in my dining room uh, while my dog is trying to sleep. Uh, and um, so I apologize in advance that it's um, not clean and polished. Um, I'm aware, uh, and I guess I should tell you, I'm aware that um, I cough and clear my throat a lot. Um, and I'm sorry about that. It annoys me too. Uh, I've actually seen some specialists about it and they tell me it's nothing but my asthma and there's nothing that can really be done about it. So, um, so I am aware of it and I've tried. I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, um, if you could uh, play through some of this and um, listen to it and see what you get, uh, let's see if you can access it okay, uh, I would appreciate it. Um, this, is, um, this is some of the last stuff that we didn't get to cover um, at the end of chapter, is it chapter nine, um, uh, that, um, that I want to be giving you a test on soon, next week. Uh, and so, um, <clears throat> so that's what I've recorded here. So anyway, let me know what you think. Thank you much. Okay, well, if you remember the last time we met in real life, uh, seems like a long time ago now, uh, there were a few slides at the end of the chapter on sexual dysfunctions, paraphilias, and gender dysphoria that we hadn't covered. Um, and so I wanted to do a little bit of a podcast recording on some of those kinds of topics um, to finish out that chapter, uh, since you have a test on that coming up. Anyway, um, uh, where we left off, we talked about some of the paraphilic disorders, but not all of them. Uh, and we hadn't talked about causes or treatments of paraphilic disorders. So I'd like to do that in uh, this recording right now. And then I'll also do another short recording on uh, gender dysphoria uh, as the last um, disorder or group of disorders in this chapter. So if you would, uh, if you're following along in the slides, um, I'm going to go back a little bit just to um, uh, slide number 13 uh, to talk about the um, general diagnostic criteria for the paraphilic disorders and then uh, jump to where we left off last time. Remember that the uh, paraphilic disorders are a group of disorders uh, involving deviant patterns of sexual fantasy urges or behaviors uh, that are lasting in a sense. They're not just uh, transient things, they're uh, at least six months in duration and they involve some duress or impairment. I'm sorry, distress or impairment. Uh, sometimes they do involve duress. Uh, <clears throat> distress or impairment. Uh, that distress or impairment is not always on the part of the person with the disorder. It may be on the part of someone else, uh, that um, these are disorders that can sometimes involve harm to other people, um, <clears throat> people who are uh, non-consenting uh, other people, which who we might call victims. Uh, and so there are <clears throat> uh, there is some overlap here with um, uh, criminal behaviors and the paraphilic disorders. Now, um, uh, one more important point on the way that these diagnoses are. Um, 
described in the DSM-5 is that there was a subtle but I think important uh, change in the way that the disorders are named. Uh, they went from being called exhibitionism, pedophilia, voyeurism, for instance, to exhibitionistic disorder, voyeuristic disorder. Um, and um, what that uh, does is that puts that, it puts these diagnoses um, uh, in the same kind of class as uh, a lot of the other kinds of behaviors that we've looked at through the semester, where there is a normal range of some of these behaviors. But what we're talking about here in the diagnoses is an extreme uh, version of them. So just like we saw a group of disorders uh, called anxiety disorders, but that there's also a normal range of anxiety that's not disordered. So we have anxiety, normal range of anxiety, and we also have anxiety disorders. Uh, here we've got a normal range of paraphilias and also paraphilic disorders. Now, um, <clears throat> to avoid confusion uh, here, I will tend to use the term paraphilic disorders for the diagnoses themselves. For a lesser degree of these that aren't considered disordered, I prefer to use the term a sexual variant or variation. And what that implies is that it's uh, a person's it's not a person's <clears throat> uh, preferred pattern of uh, uh, sexual responding, but um, something that they may engage in occasionally, uh, and that this is to a lesser degree, that it's not causing any, any impairment, and most notably that it involves uh, consenting people uh, so that there's no um, duress, uh, no coercion, uh, and no victimization, right? Uh, probably the best example of this would be uh, things like um, bondage and domination, which um, which people are liable to engage in as a, as a mode of sex play sometimes um, <clears throat> that would be done in, you know, essentially safe situations where there's a safe word and there's ground rules and people know that it's not real in a sense. Uh, and um, so that would be... Um, uh, an example of a sexual variant or a sexual variation. In the paraphilic disorder diagnoses, we're talking about much more extreme things uh, where there is um, often harm to people. So uh, we looked at the um, four diagnoses on slide number 14 uh, last time, exhibitionistic disorder, fetishistic disorder, fraturistic disorder, and pedophilic disorder. Um, and I think I pretty much finished covering pedophilic disorder. Um, <clears throat> so ready to pick up with the uh, diagnoses on slide number 15, which starts with sexual masochism disorder. Uh, sexual masochism disorder is a pattern of uh, sexual arousal by receiving pain or humiliation. Uh, now, this seems to be... Um, a lot about the humiliation involved, and there can be a lot of different ways that people are involved in that sort of thing. Uh, not exactly always involving physical pain, but this could include things like uh, urinating and defecating on a person or something like that, um, <clears throat> being made to be a slave or being made to be a farm animal or a piece of furniture or something like that. Um, in a sense, um, something that is uh, humiliating to the person themselves. Um, masochist, uh, people with sexual masochism disorder then, um, <clears throat> then are uh, uh, sort of dependent upon um, 
masochist, masochistic kind of behaviors or fantasies in order to become sexually aroused. So, so again, this is more than just a preference. This is kind of a, um, <clears throat> uh, this is a dependence. Uh, sexual sadism disorder is sexual arousal by inflicting pain or humiliation on another person. Now, at first glance, you might think that um, sadists and masochists would get along just fine together. Um, one likes giving pain and one likes receiving pain. Uh, however, for people with true sexual sadism disorder, they're not interested in somebody who wants to receive uh, pain or humiliation. Um, they are most interested in people who don't want that. Uh, so we're talking about some fairly sick stuff here. Um, <clears throat> there is a there's a class of rapists uh, that are known as sadistic rapists, and um, and what that term implies is that uh, they're not just uh, motivated by a desire to rape somebody, but to torture, demean, um, uh, kill the person, um, and those kinds of rapes often end up with um, a murder of the victim. Um, the, in, um, in a sadistic rape, the, uh, the rapist is using far more force than would be necessary to subdue a person, uh, for sexual behaviors. And they seem to be motivated by that desire to, um, demean and, uh, torture another person. There are, um, you know, there are of course cases of this, um, that have happened in the world and in the news. And, uh, honestly, I'd prefer not to talk about them because, uh, it's some pretty disturbing stuff. Um, <clears throat> Let's see. Um, transvestic disorder. Uh, transvestic disorder is a pattern of sexual arousal uh, invoked by uh, cross-dressing for sexual arousal. Um, this one, uh, this diagnosis is unique in that it is specified in the DSM that it can only be diagnosed in heterosexual males. Uh, and that's to... Um, eliminate uh, anything related to uh, gay men dressing in drag or other, there's plenty other reasons why people are liable to cross-dress. Um, notice that this is not anything about um, sexual orientation. It's not anything about gender identity. Um, men with transvestic disorder are uh, heterosexual men uh, who tend to cross-dress, usually in secret, usually in private, for purposes of their own sexual arousal and masturbation. Uh, they will often um, choose, uh, I don't know how to say it, but uh, ultra-feminine kinds of clothes, maybe, like um, uh, almost costumes, like uh, fishnet stockings and high heels and corsets and stuff like that. Um, as I said, they will usually do this in private and secret. They're usually um, uh, secretive about it, um, and they will use it as their own um, uh, sexual fantasy. Uh, for masturbation. Um, in some case reports of uh, men with transvestic disorder, they have um, described it as that they will sometimes kind of play both roles in their um, sexual fantasy where they will be touching themselves and uh, fantasizing that they are touching some very sexy woman or something like that, kind of playing both roles. But um, um, most men with transvestic disorder um, do this only in private. They will occasionally go out in public while, while cross-dressed. Um, sometimes that's just as a prelude to their own um, sexual fantasy and masturbation. They may flirt with men in bars, but they're not looking to pick up men in bars. Um, uh, they just kind of want to see how well they can pass.
Um, uh, there are, um, there's a good chance that the person with this disorder as a heterosexual male is married to a woman. And, um, and sometimes wives don't know about this behavior. Sometimes they do. Uh, there've only been a handful of cases of, um, men with transvestic disorder that I've known in my career, maybe three, maybe four. I don't know. Uh, anyway, but um, uh, it struck me a good long time ago that um, in all of the cases that I knew, there was also an element of sexual masochism in that um, the man who was uh, cross-dressing um, uh, wanted to be punished by his wife for cross-dressing. Uh, so like scolded or made to sleep on the floor or told he was a bad boy, uh, kind of stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure if that's always a part of... Um, a transvestic disorder, because admittedly, you know, my three or four patients is a pretty small number. Um, <clears throat> uh, but that's uh, that's what I observed. Um, let's see. Uh, in some of the cases of transvestic disorder that I've known, um, the uh, spouse, the wife, just didn't want to know about the behavior. They were like, um, okay, well, that's his thing. He does that, but I don't want to know about it. Um, and other ones had, um, other couples had kind of negotiated, uh, a way of doing it where they would have sex with him cross-dressed sometimes, as long as they could have sex without him cross-dressed other times, they had kind of negotiated things. Um, <clears throat> let's see, uh, the, what, last of the paraphilic disorder diagnosis, diagnoses is voyeuristic disorder. Um, voyeuristic disorder is where a person uh, achieves sexual arousal uh, by watching other people who don't want to be watched uh, while those people are naked or having sex. Um, now, I don't know about you, but um, when I think of uh, this term, I imagine somebody sitting outside of a bedroom window looking into somebody's window watching them. And I suppose that probably does happen. Um, but, um, but more likely these days, voyeuristic disorder is facilitated by technology, uh, where people, you know, um, use uh, cameras and video and things like that in order to um, uh, try to see people who don't want to be seen. Um, now, uh, what's um, what's telling about this diagnosis is that there are still a lot of people with um, uh, these voyeuristic kinds of tendencies, even though there are plenty of opportunities nowadays to see people who are naked and having sex. Um, people with voyeuristic disorder aren't really interested uh, often in um, mainline, mainstream kind of porn stuff because uh, what they're really turned on by is the fact that the people don't want to be watched that they're watching. And in porn, people have consented to be watched. And so, um, uh, so uh, people with voyeuristic disorder um, uh, are often turned on by this taboo of it and also that they are doing something that their victim doesn't want done, right? Uh, that, um, that also uh, leads to the idea that um, people with voyeuristic disorder should be considered dangerous. Um, uh, and the reason I say that is that um, in studies of convicted rapists, what they find is that a lot of rapists started off as voyeurs, um, meaning that um, when uh, voyeurs are watching people who are naked or having sex, uh, apparently the voyeur is often fantasizing that they are having an exclusive sexual relationship with the person that they are watching. Uh, and after a while, watching isn't enough. They want to get closer and they want to touch. 
And so there's a tendency for this kind of behavior to ramp up. Um, so if you recall, when we looked at um, exhibitionistic disorder um, uh, last time in class, uh, I think I probably told you then that the research on exhibition, people with ex exhibitionistic disorder says that um, usually exhibitionists aren't uh, having sexual fantasies about the person, the people that they're exposing themselves to. And so some people would regard that as, okay, exhibitionists may be less dangerous to their victims or less of a potential threat uh, to their victims than voyeurs. I would still say that, you know, exhibitionists are liable to be dangerous. Uh, but, um, um, but especially if you see voyeuristic behavior um, in your... friends or family members or children, um, the best thing to do is to nip it in the bud, um, to um, uh, see that as a red flag and uh, try to do something about it early on. Um, let's see. <clears throat> so if we go to uh, slide 16, we look at um, causal factors and treatment for people with paraphilic disorders. Um, there's, um, there's a lot of reasonably good explanations of what causes paraphilic disorders. Um, um, however, when it comes to treatment, um, I can't brag about good treatment for folks with paraphilic disorders. Uh, the treatments should work in theory, but they don't really in real life. Let's look at causal factors first. Um, uh, from a lot of studies with um, people with paraphilic disorders, uh, they can often point to early experience that led to them developing this kind of pattern of um, sexual deviance. So certainly elements of classical conditioning, operant conditioning, and observational learning playing a part there. Um, consider that um, for things like classical conditioning, essentially associating a particular non-human object, like in a fetish, uh, associating that with sexual arousal and or um, uh, orgasm. Um, sexual arousal in itself is uh, motivating and reinforcing. Uh, orgasm is very reinforcing. And so um, if a person pairs a particular kind of object with sexual um, um, arousal and orgasm, um, that's going to pair fairly quickly in order to lead to that um, uh, object becoming an unconditioned stimulus. I'm sorry, a conditioned stimulus uh, for sexual arousal. Um, <clears throat> uh, observational learning, there, uh, this, um, this explanation comes from a lot of uh, anecdotal reports or case studies with um, convicted sex offenders. Many times they report that they saw somebody else engaged in these kind of behaviors and thought that they could do it themselves. Um, that's frequently true for men with transvestic fetishes, uh, transvestic disorder. And also um, fraudulentistic disorder um, that um, that they might observe somebody else doing it and say that they can uh, try that themselves. Um, <clears throat> um, many times, um, people who have uh, paraphilic disorders were victimized themselves by other people with paraphilic disorders. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, don't get me wrong when I say this. Um, uh, sometimes this is sort of sounds like you're giving an excuse for somebody and saying, oh, well, you know, they were a victim themselves. And, you know, we should feel sorry for this perpetrator. And that's not exactly what I'm saying here. But um, 
what I mean is that um, when people are victimized by other people sexually, they learn some pretty deviant kinds of lessons with regard to themselves, with regard to sex and sexuality. Um, often kids who are sexually abused will learn that their value as a person, their value to adults, uh, comes from their ability to uh, engage sexually or do something sexually. And so, um, so there's um, early exposure to deviant models, uh, essentially, in the person's um, uh, knowledge about themselves and uh, sexuality. So that can often play a part in this, too. One thing that almost goes, always goes along with paraphilic disorder diagnosis, though, is the idea of hypersexual desire. What I mean by this is that um, uh, many men with paraphilic disorders uh, express very high levels of sexual motivation. Um, now, when we looked at um, sexual desire in talking about um, uh, sexual dysfunctions, particularly in looking at low levels of desire, the opposite, uh, <clears throat> you know, I mentioned that uh, there that it's kind of hard to quantify uh, sexual desire, how much sexual desire does a person have and how does that compare to other people? Um, but um, uh, consider that uh, folks with um, paraphilic disorders often engage in a lot of sexual fantasy, very high levels of masturbation, and very um, uh, high levels of desired frequency of sex, all indications of overall high levels of sexual desire. Now, um, this may be the key that, um, that combines with some of that uh, classical conditioning operant conditioning and observational learning in order to cause a problem uh, in, um, in order to cause a paraphilic disorder. Because, um, <clears throat> you know, if I was described, when I was describing before, pairing a, um, an object with sexual arousal and you're thinking, oh yeah, come on, that can't really be enough. Um, consider that um, if we add to that, that we might have a person who is doing this a lot, <laughs> uh, uh, very frequently masturbating with this particular kind of object or something like that. Uh, and then that can become uh, ingrained in the person's um, uh, patterns of sexual arousal overall. Um, I don't recall if we got to talk about this um, at the end of the discussion of sexual dysfunctions, um, but um, but there um, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be a diagnosis. There isn't a diagnosis in the DSM five now for hypersexuality all by itself. Uh, what people might refer to as sexual addiction or sexual compulsion, even though people will talk about that as if it's a thing, it's not in the DSM. And the reason for that is that uh, the authors of the DSM-5 revision looked at the research on hypersexuality and discovered that while hypersexuality is a thing, um, it doesn't seem to come by itself. Uh, so the, re the way that they phrased that was that they found no um, compelling evidence of non-paraphilic hypersexuality, meaning that in most cases when people do, ex do uh, experience hypersexuality, they end up getting into a problem with one of these paraphilic disorders, so, so it didn't seem to stand as a diagnosis of its own. By the way, there are other kinds of diagnoses that may be associated with hypersexuality, including, you know, if somebody is, um, is in a manic episode or something like that, uh, but, um, uh, but again, that would be um, uh, covered by that other diagnosis. And so at current, uh, at present, there is no diagnosis of just plain hypersexuality or sexual addiction. Uh, but we often see that with folks with paraphilic disorders.
Now, last thing to mention here for paraphilic disorders is uh, treatment. Uh, since we know or think we know some things about what causes paraphilic disorders, uh, you would think that um, this could lead us to some reasonable kinds of treatment interventions. Uh, and, um, and it does, but the treatment interventions don't really work, um, usually. One of the things that we've got going here is that um, the motivation to change these behaviors is often low. Um, uh, people with paraphilic disorders often don't um, uh, want to change their sexual behaviors. They're, if they're in treatment, they're there because they've been caught, uh, either by a family member who says, look, you know, I don't like this thing, you got to get this straightened out, or we're through, or something like that. Or more frequently, they get in trouble with the law, um, and they might be treated in a sex offender program while incarcerated. Um, and so their um, their motivation to change overall may be low. Uh, the other thing um, that we're going against here is that um, many of these behaviors have a very long history of being associated with sexual arousal and orgasm. And so as far as uh, conditioning goes, those are some of the strongest reinforcers that we know of. Uh, and so we don't have much else that can override a lot of that um, kind of uh, history. Right? Um, <clears throat> so unfortunately, the um, the uh, outlook is not good uh, at present for treating folks with paraphilic disorders, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that I think that uh, we should really be watching for these kinds of behaviors in our uh, children and adolescents, particularly our young boys and adolescent boys. Um, <clears throat> uh, and, um, and if you see them engaging in uh, behaviors like this, um, then see that as a red flag and uh, try to um, intervene early. Because one of the problems with treatment later is that you're going up against a whole history of, um, uh, of these kinds of behaviors. Um, one kind of treatment approach that uh, is sometimes tried, particularly in inpatient, I'm sorry, in uh, a treatment for incarcerated sex offenders is covert sensitization, uh, <clears throat> which is essentially a counter conditioning. I'm sorry, no, it's essentially a punishment procedure uh, where the person um, engages in some of their deviant patterns of sexual fantasy and then suddenly changes that fantasy to something well punishing um, <clears throat> or associates that fantasy with something unpleasant that may be, uh, you know, actually using awful smells or. Uh, even electric shock, or using something awful in fantasy uh, as a way of trying to um, uh, counter condition, or I'm sorry, punish uh, some of those kinds of sexual fantasies. Um, that doesn't work very well, but it is often tried. Um, <clears throat> people will also sometimes uh, approach this from the perspective of social skills training, in that um, it has been noted that a lot of folks with um, paraphilic disorders um, uh, are lacking in social skills, particularly um, people with pedophilia and, well, a lot of them actually. Uh, there's a general theory that tries to tie together some of the paraphilic disorders um, that says that essentially they are the result of a breakdown in the way that um, people normally uh, engage and interact with one another uh, with potential sex partners. And so that um, people with paraphilic disorders may be impaired in some of those ways and that uh, improving their social skills training may help some. I don't know. Um, we certainly usually do see that, um, that people with pedophilia in particular uh, usually have pretty, sore, pretty poor social skills, but 
Um, I haven't seen evidence that um, improving social skills uh, uh, improves their overall outcome. Um, the last thing that um, uh, may be tried as part of uh, treatment for folks with paraphilic disorders <clears throat> is what's called chemical castration. Um, uh, chemical castration, uh, I put that in quotes on your slide because essentially that's um, the term that's used for it sometimes. Um, and uh, chemical castration essentially means um, uh, treatment of a male person with Depo-Provera, uh, which will temporarily mm, cause that person to be unable to have erections and uh, reduce their overall level of sexual desire. Um, this is exactly the same shot as can be done for female people for birth control. I believe that shot lasts for three months at a time uh, for birth control. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but in male people, it causes a uh, decline in um, sexual motivation. So trying to, um, uh, uh, trying to address that hypersexual desire and also uh, causes difficulty with erections. Uh, the reason this is sometimes preferred to actual physical or surgical castration is that it is reversible. And so it's seen as, you know, potentially more humane. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's, uh, it seems to me that um, when chemical castration is used, it's often used as a part of treatment or sometimes even used as a part of uh, plea bargaining things um, in that um, chemical castration by itself doesn't seem to be enough, uh, but, um, but that it may be used as an adjunct with other kinds of treatment. Um, the, um, the thing about this is that uh, while this does try to address the high levels of sexual desire in folks with paraphilic disorder and may actually decrease the desire, I'm not convinced that that's going to um, put potential victims uh, at ease in any way or make it safer for them. Uh, and the analogy I use for that is um, the eating and hunger that, um, yeah, we eat because we're hungry, right? Uh, and so if we took away our biological drive of hunger, then we wouldn't eat anymore, right? Well, no, we would still eat um, because we've got a lot of experience with food. We've got a lot of experience with eating in certain times and places and smells and other things like that, such that it's not even the motivation, the, the biological motivation of hunger that necessarily uh, leads to our eating. And um, uh, so I think we could say a similar thing for um, hypersexuality uh, in people with paraphilic disorders. Okay, the last topic from this chapter um, is uh, gender dysphoria. Uh, gender dysphoria is essentially a diagnosis that's in a class by itself. It's the only diagnosis in the DSM uh, where the primary symptoms are related to um, uh, gender identity. Um, <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> what we're looking at here is essentially uh, an extreme a uh, case of uh, gender dysphoria where there is significant distress um, <clears throat> and impairment because of the gender dysphoria. Uh, just to remind you again, a lot of the kinds of behaviors that we're looking at uh, here have a normal variation of them. And um, so many of the things that, um, that you might think of with regard to differences in gender identities nowadays uh, that people are becoming more open about talking about and um, 
Uh, those are not gender dysphoria. Uh, gender dysphoria is the extreme version. So there's, um, there's a good degree of normal variation of gender and gender identity. Um, gender dysphoria is only diagnosed when there is significant distress or impairment because of it. Gender dysphoria, though, is where there is a conflict between a person's biological sex and their gender identity. Um, this is most, most commonly described by a person with gender dysphoria as, I have the wrong kind of body. Um, uh, people will say, I feel like I have uh, a female brain, but I was born with this male body and it just doesn't match. Um, or I have a male brain and I have this female body and it just doesn't match. Uh, so for the person, there's often a clear sense of mismatch between the way that they think of themselves and see of themselves in gender terms, that is, as being male or female, um, and their biological sense of being male or female. Um, <clears throat> uh, this would include folks who would self-identify as trans or transgender, but certainly not all people. Uh, in fact, only a minority of people who identify as trans or transgender uh, would probably qualify for a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Uh, gender dysphoria shouldn't be confused with, oh, I switched to slide number 18. Uh, gender dysphoria should not be confused with transvestitism or transvestic uh, disorder, which we saw in the previous um, group of disorders, the paraphilic disorders. If you remember, transvestitism does involve cross-dressing, but it involves cross-dressing by a heterosexual male for purposes, purely for purposes of sexual uh, arousal. <clears throat> uh, that doesn't involve anything to do with um, uh, gender identity. Um, this also not to be confused with uh, homosexuality or anything having to do with sexual orientation at all. Um, you probably know that um, sexual orientation and gender are two completely separate constructs uh, so that um, who a person is attracted to for sexual relationships uh, is not really related to their gender. Uh, gender is more how the person feels and sees themselves with regard to gender. Um, uh, homosexuality was listed in the DSM as a diagnosis. It was actually under the paraphilic disorders, uh, that group of um, deviant uh, patterns uh, that we looked at in the last um, section. Um, up until fairly recently, up until 1973, and even after that, there was a diagnosis of, um, what was it called, uh, egodystonic homosexuality, uh, meaning essentially if a person had homosexual, had same-sex attractions and was distressed by them, they could be diagnosed with that. Um, <clears throat> uh, that was um, removed uh, and, um, and there's nothing having to do with sexual orientation at all uh, that's diagnosable in the DSM now. Um, <clears throat> so this is not about sexual orientation. Um, this is also not about just plain nonconformity, um, uh, that um, people can uh, express uh, gender in a lot of different kinds of ways. They can express themselves in a lot of different ways. They can go against expected gender roles and gender norms and not necessarily have gender dysphoria, right? Um, so this, is, um, this shouldn't be confused with those. Now, some of the changes in the diagnosis of gender dysphoria in the DSM-5 are pretty significant. Um, the, um, 
The first one is that uh, there is now uh, special criteria for gender dysphoria in um, adolescents, uh, which wasn't really there before. Uh, this um, <clears throat> and so the um, so the diagnostic criteria have increased uh, somewhat uh, as far as encapsulating um, gender dysphoria in younger people uh, as presenting a little bit differently than gender dysphoria in adults. Um, one other thing that um, has changed, although this was. Um, true in the last edition of the DSM-2, is that uh, it is also possible for a person to have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and keep that diagnosis even, <clears throat> even after they fully transition surgically uh, to, uh, to the other gender, uh, to the other sex. <clears throat> um, uh, this was um, this was a problem for some people for a while because uh, they could have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, undergo full sexual reassignment surgery, and then technically they would seem to no longer fit gender dysphoria, and yet they still needed treatment. <laughs> they still need hormone uh, treatment and things like that to support that um, uh, sex reassignment. So um, so now there is a um, qualifier in the diagnosis that uh, allows a person to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria post-transition, I believe is the way it's worded. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but probably the biggest uh, change in the diagnosis of gender dysphoria is that in previous editions of the DSM, intersex conditions were specifically um, eliminated from the diagnosis, whereas now they are included. Uh, they were specifically excluded before, uh, and now they are included. Uh, intersex conditions are biological physical conditions where there is some ambiguity of the person's physical um, uh, sex. Um, the idea in previous editions of the DSM was that uh, the term gender dysphoria itself was only going to be used in cases where this was purely a mental phenomenon, in a sense, that it was only if there was no ambiguity of the person's genitals. Uh, research in the last 20 years starts to indicate that, um, that even if there's not an obvious uh, physical reason for a person's gender dysphoria, there can be some differences. Uh, differences in the way that the brain is constructed and things like that, that, um, uh, that it's kind of difficult to say that this is purely mental and not a physical kind of condition. What this did, though, by including intersex conditions now in the diagnosis of gender dysphoria is going to fairly um, uh, significantly increase the incidence of this diagnosis. And so, um, so if you look at how common gender dysphoria is in the general population, you're going to see a blip uh, that it increases um, with this new definition from the um, uh, from the DSM. Whereas prior to this, uh, it was estimated to be um, one tenth of one percent or something like that, um, <clears throat> and it's gone up significantly to one uh, percent or something like that. <clears throat> um, the um, the thing though about this is that uh, there are a lot of different kinds of intersex conditions. Um, and um, uh, intersex conditions themselves don't necessarily lead to gender dysphoria. Uh, however, um, they're no longer an exclusion criterion for gender dysphoria. So some examples of intersex conditions um, uh, I've listed in your slides. These are actually, the ones I've listed in your slides are actually um, hormonal conditions, not chromosomal conditions. There are some intersex some chromosomal intersex conditions uh, like Klinefelter syndrome or Turner syndrome, uh, which is where people have extra or missing XY chromosomes essentially. Um, uh, and, um, and that can 
cause some differences in biological sex. Um, but, um, but the ones I've listed here are, are not chromosomal. They are uh, hormonal, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, is a condition that can be seen in people who are chromosomally female, so XX chromosomes, um, but from very early on, their adrenal glands uh, are producing um, uh, higher than normal levels of testosterone, uh, which leads to some masculinization of physical uh, of the physical body, um, including the genitals, uh, so that. Uh, a girl born with congenital adrenal hyperplasia is liable to have a fairly enlarged clitoris that may actually even be mistaken for a penis at first. Um, uh, there's also seems to be some, um, some subtle masculinization of the brain. Um, androgen insensitivity syndrome is one that would be seen in people who are chromosomally male, that is XY chromosomes. Uh, however, um, phenotypically, the person is very strongly female uh, in um, in their body, in their presentation, and often in their sex in their gender identity. Uh, essentially, androgen insensitivity syndrome involves uh, where the person has internal testes that are producing and releasing normal amounts of um, normal amounts for a male of uh, testosterone. Uh, however, the receptors for testosterone. Uh, are absent. And so while this testosterone is circulating through the person's bloodstream, it's not going anywhere. It's not having any effect, essentially. And so what that leads to is a um, highly feminine, feminized um, uh, body structures. Uh, most people with androgen sensitivity syndrome are clearly female from, from uh, exterior appearance. Um, uh, many times, uh, people with this don't know that they have it until they reach adolescence and don't begin menstruating, uh, and then have that checked out. Um, people with androgen insensitivity syndrome are, um, you know, will have a, a short, um, uh, vagina, uh, they won't have a uterus, um, they won't be able to reproduce, um, and, um, uh, but they're often very feminine in appearance and identity. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see, uh, there are some other possible causal factors here in gender dysphoria, uh, some possibilities with regard to learned behavior or modeling um, in that uh, some, of, um, uh, some of this may be as a result of experience and being taught. Uh, however, the, um, one of the biggest uh, explanations now for gender dysphoria is uh, exposure to sex hormones while still in utero. So while the person is still in their mother's womb, if they're exposed to um, uh, high levels of particular sex hormones, uh, that essentially what this can do is make subtle changes in the brain. Um, now, the idea of male and female brains is probably pretty much overblown, that um, male and female brains are very, very similar to one another. In fact, um, the differences are subtle and slight, uh, so that um, it's hard to find uh, consistent differences between a male brain and a female brain. However, there are some subtle differences, and these subtle differences may be uh, uh, what... Um, <coughs> what are responsible for uh, for some of that kind of difference. Um, so that when a person with gender dysphoria expresses it as, yes, I have a female body, but I have a male brain, they may be speaking uh, truth and that, <laughs> that uh, they may be expressing that in the most clear way that it can be expressed in a sense, in that, um, that it may be something like that, right?
Uh, treatment for folks with gender dysphoria is often going to be to um, uh, change something about the person's physical sex uh, to bring it in line with their um, with their gender identity. This is going to involve um, this could involve uh, hormone treatment, uh, treatment with, with other sex sex hormones essentially. Um, <clears throat> that's going to change the uh, physical appearance of the body in a lot of ways. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and um, people can undergo sex reassignment surgery. Um, sex reassignment surgery is actually consists of a number of different kinds of procedures, uh, which um, which would make physical changes in the body. That could involve um, mastectomy to remove breasts. That could involve breast augmentation to create breasts. If hormones by themselves don't create breasts, which they sometimes do. Um, uh, it can include changes in um, in facial appearance, in um, uh, um, uh, in other things like that. The uh, usually one of the last things that would occur in sex reassignment surgery would be uh, surgical reassignment of uh, genitals. Um, and so, um, so many people opt to not go all that far. Um, so, uh, it's not necessary for somebody to undergo complete sex reassignment surgery. Um, many people, far more people now, I think are opting for a partial, uh, sex reassignment. Um, some of the reasons for that, uh, are that, um, well, this is, this can be expensive, uh, um, procedure to go through. And, um, and it does involve some risks. Uh, it certainly involves risks in that it is surgery, but, um, but for about 15% of people, uh, undergoing sex reassignment surgery of the genitals, uh, they're unable to orgasm after sex reassignment surgery. Notice that 85% of people are able to orgasm after sex reassignment surgery. Um, but there is still, you know, a fairly significant chance that the person may lose the ability to orgasm. Uh, so that's certainly one of the risks. Um, adjustment counseling is often going to be part of this too, that, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, that this certainly involves a major transition and, um, and it is still the recommendation that, uh, I, that, um, most, um, most surgeons or clinics that would do sex reassignment surgery do require that, uh, that a person be in counseling or therapy with a psychologist or a psychiatrist for at least a year, sometimes uh, two years, um, to make sure that that person is, um, you know, an appropriate candidate for this because it is a, it is irreversible.